probably not intuitive. The when you hear evidence-based practice, the first thing you think of is science, literature, you know, reviews, etc. But um, it was it was really uh, it, was, it was really good for my learning when when I was given a, a proper description and introduction to what evidence-based practice is, and it and it does. Yes, it has the best available literature, but it also has the in the in the medicine world, it's it's patient values, but in our context, it'd be athlete values and practitioner experience, um, and and the three of those combined is is what uh, is what evidence based practice is. I'm Daniel Lucchini, and this is the Merakai Performance Podcast. And welcome to the fourth episode of the Merakai Performance Podcast. I am Daniel Lucchini, your host. And today we have guest Mitch Henderson on. Uh, Mitch is a current PhD. He's doing a PhD looking at the effects of uh, the heat and humidity uh, on female athletes specifically. And this is all part of his work that he's doing with the Australian Rugby Union. Uh, he's spent time both at the, when, uh, the men's and the women's sevens. And he's doing some great work there. So he's, he's not just doing great work with the athletes, but he's also applying that uh, into research and trying to find better ways to do things that are going to allow uh, that team and that system to have better practices in place to ensure that their athletes are getting the most out of it. And that became a big theme of today's conversation. Uh, he's also spent some time in rugby league where we actually spent a little bit of time working together. I sort of came in as he was leaving and he has continued down the sports side, whereas I went more into the private side from there. He brings his knowledge of athlete monitoring and what it really means to be an evidence-based practitioner. Now, when someone who is doing a PhD says that science alone is not what it means to be an evidence-based practitioner, you kind of listen to that and it's really important to dive into that. And that's something that I went through a big transformation with and it was it was letting go of following the textbook to such a T and, and taking every little bit of research you read and trying to apply it and you end up just getting uh, paralysis by analysis basically. So without being able to uh, dissociate when it's time to step away from the research as being your only source of information and learning how to apply the athlete's values and also our own experience. And that becomes a really, really important element. Of course, the science is still the third factor there and it is still very important. And, and like you said, we, we have to give value to the science because it does give us so much back. And as a PhD student, it's, it's you know even more critical that he is thinking along those lines because uh, it kind of gives value to his work as well. Uh, we speak about some of the applications and the current information uh, about athlete monitoring, periodization, and uh, also his work as a PhD. Uh, I had a really great chat with with Mitch, and it, it's great to speak with someone who is working with top flight athletes, uh, but also doing some research and and just seeing how their approach is, is dictated. Because we have a lot of coaches who work at a high level who perhaps don't have such an in-depth understanding of, of the research or looking into it as much if they've been in the industry for a long time. And then we have the other way around, people who are, who are spitting research at us, but they're not doing the practical work. They're not in it and they're not delivering uh, that service to athletes and actually banking on results. It's very easy to talk about using science and evidence, but if you're not uh, developing and getting actual results with athletes, then it doesn't mean as much to me. So today's show goes into understanding the roles uh, within sporting teams, the differences when working with males and female athletes, the differences with pregame energy in males and females, day-to-day readiness assessments, wellness scales, uh, looking at the objective versus subjective measures, what it really means to be evidence-based, including the athlete's value, which is something I talk about a lot with uh, client-centered approach, GPS tracking and how to filter the data, and the importance of high-speed running, very high-speed running, and velocity uh, when it comes to tracking for fatigue, the importance of uh, playing the support, uh, periodization, recovery strategies, including uh, some details on ice baths and how they might not be everything they think they're cracked up to be, but when uh, they can can't be more effective. Uh, Some considerations around travel or if you're working with athletes that have to travel a lot, athlete accountability, hitting the big rocks and and not focusing on the smaller details until you have those bigger details locked down, Uh, considerations around Olympic years and Olympic uh, sports that have an Olympic schedule, 
uh, working in that four-year sort of periodization plan. Considerations for the heat and humidity, heat acclimatization and cooling strategies and the adaptation that happens and what it takes to get a, an actual change. I had a real pleasure chatting to Mitch and it gave me some great thoughts to dive deeper into. So without any further ado, let's get into today's episode. And welcome to the Merikai Performance Podcast, Mitch. Great to have you on. Good to be on, mate. How you going? Great. Thank you. Great. So uh, for those of you who don't know you or the work you're doing, do you want to take us a little bit through, I guess, your education uh, and also your coaching journey thus far? What has got you to the point where you're at right now? Yep. No dramas. I, I started as a, a, a pretty shitty rugby league player. Um, after high school, I, I went and played overseas for a little while and that was, that was really good. Um, and it was kind of over there where I thought, yeah, sports science, S&C is, is a kind of thing that I could, I could see myself doing long term. Moved home, I started a, a sports science degree at UTS in 2013. Did that for a few years uh, and towards the back end of that, as part of the course, you do your, your practicum or internship. I did mine at the West Tigers and that was really good for one season. Uh, finished up my undergrad degree, went straight into an honours degree uh, at UTS again, working with the Rugby Sevens, uh, the Men's Sevens at that time. Uh, did that for the year, went straight into a PhD again at UTS, uh, continuing on at the Sevens. Uh, was there for Men's Sevens for another year, then switched over to the Women's Sevens, was there for about a year and a half, and just in the last couple of months, I've gone back to the Men's Sevens. Um, and in that time, there's been a variety of different roles, mainly mainly sports science, but this, this most recent one is, is more of a, a coaching S&C type, type gig. Um, yeah, that's kind of the quick and dirty rundown of my, my coaching. Yeah, awesome. So lots of chopping and changing there uh, between the men's and women's, yeah. but uh, stuck in there. And we, uh, we were at the Tigers together for a very brief moment. I sort of came in as you were leaving. Um, yeah, so rough, rough times at the Tigers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't think it got much better after, after you left than even after I left. Still not much better. Still, no. Like no. Well, at least they uh, they won't do the worst this season. It's it's an even playing playing field. Uh, cool, man. So uh, you said that you've done mostly the sports science stuff, and now you're transitioning more into the S and C coaching with the role. Uh, yep. Is that a really conscious decision of yours, or did it sort of happen that you just fell into that role? Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, I. I probably had more of a mindset of, of being like more of an SNC coach uh, type going into the industry, just because that's kind of what I knew. But I very much fell into the sports science stuff because of the circumstances that I was in at the Tigers. Um, I was there through a guy named Blake McLean, who was a sports science uh, strength and power coach, I think, I think was his role at the time. And he was my university tutor. So that was my in at the Tigers. I just spoke to him about doing my internship there and got me in. And because they were well equipped with SNC staff, but not as well equipped with sports science, that was just the work they needed doing. So got my hands dirty with that. And it's kind of just grew from there. I started getting into the research stuff and my research supervisor, Aaron Coots, is a, a, like a world leader in sports science research. So more so uh, just falling into the, the sports science uh, world more so than a, than a conscious decision um, but because I've been doing that for a few years I was keen to get more into the SNC stuff um, just so I could have a more rounded skill set within myself yeah exactly and, and going on on with that it's do you think that uh, you know being specialized as a sports scientist or a strength conditioning coach it, or you're probably better off having a, a bit of knowledge of both sides do you think that your experience as a sports scientist is now going to make you a better S and C, or vice versa. I hope so. I think uh, I think it's, it depends on where you want to go and, and, and stuff like that. Like I, I would hope that one day I'll be able to be a, a kind of a head of department, head of performance, whatever you want to call it, type type position one day. And I think it's important for people in that role to have a good understanding of, of all the people working beneath them. But you know, that's that's not to say that people might want to delve really deeply in, and specialize in a particular area. And that's, that's fine as well. I think it just depends on, on where you want to go with your career and where your interests lie. 
yeah, fair, exactly. So you're sort of setting yourself up to have that opportunity to be able to manage well with a bit of experience in the same way that being a coach, having been, even if you say a shitty athlete, still having been an athlete is probably going to benefit you. Just get that relatableness, right? I, I hope so. That's that's kind of the way I'm thinking about it. And yeah, like, like I say, I'm, I'm hoping that having done the, the sports science stuff and now I'm doing the S&C stuff that I'll be, I'll be a better S&C for the sports science knowledge. And if I ever go back to the sports science stuff or or change role completely, I'll, I'll be better off for having had done that other stuff. Yeah, taking insights from one side to the other. Like I know personally, I guess I didn't spend as much time in sports science as you, um, but it was always super interesting. And I think just little takeaways from there, it just, it just changes your perspective and the way you think about things and, and maybe stops you pissing off the, the sports scientists as quickly or, or vice versa as well. Uh, yeah. So a lot of switching between roles there. Uh, but the main one was switching between the sexes. So working with the females and the males. Yeah. Um, I personally haven't had much experience working with females. So did you want to tell me a little bit about like, what are the main differences that you see, I guess, from like a physical, emotional, even social sort of setting uh, when working between the males and the females? Yeah. Okay. Um, from a physical standpoint, there's, I mean, there's a couple of obvious um, like physiological differences. You've got the, you know, females, they've got their specific female hormones that they have in different amounts to males and they've got menstruation and, and stuff like that. They have less androgen hormones just just naturally. Um, so there's a few things like that, like they're not going to respond as well to, to strength training and they're not going to develop as much hypertrophy as males. But beyond, beyond that, um, there's there's nothing that I would actually intervene with or, or do differently training training a female compared to a male i know that um just in the last couple of months i heard that the chelsea football team um the women's team in england are doing some stuff around specific menstrual cycle phase interventions um i don't know to, to i don't know what to what effect but i know that they're experimenting with it and and the, the evidence the evidence that i've seen doesn't show anything strong enough that would make me go okay this is what we need to be doing um but it's good that you know someone's exploring it and there could be some there could be some stuff there i don't, I don't think it's there yet but there could be one day um but yeah I, I i wouldn't at the moment there's nothing strong enough for me to go okay because you're a female i'm going to do this differently um that's from a physical standpoint from a social standpoint um, one, one really interesting thing that I've found, and I've, I've spoken to um, one of the other coaches at, uh, at RA about this, Nathan Parnham, he, um, we, we were both had come from predominantly male sports. We both worked in rugby league before, and I've just sort of been around male change rooms my whole life. Um, and you'll see, you'll see guys preparing for a game in a lot of different ways. You'll see some that'll have their headphones on and just sort of, pump beasts themselves some that'll be like real aggressive and kind of hyped and other guys that'll just sort of sit on their own stay quiet and do not much but the girls or the, the women sevens which is the only professional female athletes i've worked with are um like they are they just exude confidence they're they're walking around they're buzzing they're pumping music they're singing they're dancing they're just they're just loving it like it's, it's all about feeling good for them and feeling confident and it is just so different. Like the vibe is completely different to a male change room. And it's, it's funny to see, and, and they're, they're world-class, like they're um, consistently top three team in the world. And yeah, that's just, it's, I don't, I don't know whether that's just specific to them, but I think it's, there's probably something going on there because I've never, I've been in hundreds of men's change rooms that I've never ever seen anything like that. Yeah, I definitely agree with you about like seeing the nerves and everything in the male changer and just as a male athlete as well. Like it's it's about just Honestly, trying to get hyped up around on, it. On, yeah, on the on the World Series with the, the Aussie girls, you wouldn't think any of them are concerned at all about the game, but they obviously are. It's just that they deal with it differently. Yeah, that's a bit yeah. interesting. See, I guess at first thought, I, I'd probably think more along the opposite of that, but uh, it's cool to hear yeah. the, the first hand. Yeah. It's like, it's like pop music as well. Like, you know, Nicki Minaj <laughs> kind of shit. Like, it is, it's not even pump up stuff that, yeah. you, that you get in exchange rooms. 
it's just creating that, that that good that good feeling is more mm. important than like a certain level of hype. Well, that that that's how they achieve their their optimal arousal. I guess if we talk about yeah, arousal exactly. curves and yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have like expected it. I wouldn't have predicted it coming in, but it's what it is, and it seems to work for them. Yeah, that's super interesting. Mm. Uh, just going back on the physical one, I had a. Uh, a women's health specialist in uh, for the last podcast, uh, Julia, and she talked about the the stuff with menstruation as well, and, and mentions a little bit of research there. But again, it wasn't super. This is a hundred percent, but yeah, just like that leading up, like pre-menstruation, just before then, supposedly that's a time where they really can't handle as much work, and and mm. during a menstruation might actually be able to do a little bit more, even though they don't feel as good. So but there's no real yeah. considerations around that necessarily. Well, I suppose. Uh, like I'm, I'm sure there there is stuff like that, but for a team sport where you've got to deal with 2025 20, that aren't all going to be on the same cycle um, pattern, it, it's hard to you know how how you're going to plan everyone's training around that. Um, it makes it difficult. We we don't even uh, collect any data on their menstrual cycle phase. We suggest that they use like the apps which I th- uh, what's it called? I think it's Fit Fit R. I think it might be called. There's there's an app where female athletes can, can just sort of log in their information and it tracks their menstrual cycle and stuff. Um, so we encourage them to, to use that just so they're aware and, and they can communicate anything that they want to to coaches. But there was no mandated everyone, you know, tell us when you're ovulating, so on and so forth, just so we can plan around that because it would just be, it would be next to impossible, I would imagine, to appropriately adjust every person's training in such a big group. Individual athletes, you can probably do that heaps better like you could probably you know com- completely individualize it to to their cycle phase but in a team sport where you got 25 of them it would be pretty difficult yeah exactly it's it's they're not on the same page you can't have one deloading here and the other one pushing on this day and yeah i've had a few individual athletes that i've had to deal with like that and that's it's really easy like you said but in a team well, sport it's almost it's, impossible yeah yeah you got a tournament coming up and or or you're in a particular week where you need to get like you know you need to get a lot of work in it, it's kind of yeah it, it's hard to adjust based on that I, I, I hopefully in the future there'll be better ways to do it and more information available to us so we can better serve the, the female athletes but at the moment um the evidence hasn't been strong enough for me to go yeah this is something that we should be doing yeah and that's that seems completely fair enough until like you said more research uh, comes out and is done and we have a clearer picture that all right. Awesome. Uh, so sort of going through with that and, and looking at the athlete and how ready they feel, uh, I wanted to get into you uh, with a little bit about athlete monitoring and the things we can do to assess how ready uh, an athlete is day to day, how ready they are on a week to week basis and how we can make sure that they're going to be the most ready, you know, uh, for training time. So did you want to take us a little bit through what you guys were doing uh, to guys and girls, uh, to assess day-to-day readiness when they walk in, how do we know if they're ready to go that day? Yep. Um, like an overarching theme, I suppose, for a lot of the stuff that we do at the sevens is, is we, we like to keep things pretty simple and just really smash the basics because we're, we're a smaller staff. Sevens isn't as a higher profile sport. We don't have the resources like an AFL team would have or an NRL team would have and stuff like that. But we, we don't see that as an excuse to, to not deliver a world class performance program it just means that thankfully you know the fundamental training principles don't cost much to do you know overload specificity individualization that you you can do that and you can have a really good program on very little money and very little resources which is great Um, so for like day-to-day readiness we have a subjective assessment like a wellness questionnaire which is called the modified hoopers scale uh, it's uh, there's some research behind it. You could just look up um, Hooper's scale wellness, I suppose, into Google, and, and it would come up. It's a real simple kind of sleep, uh, stress, fatigue, muscle soreness, one to seven scale. Um, track that over time with some with some statistical analysis. Uh, we also have an objective assessment, which is a, a groin squeeze using a blood pressure cuff, and there's been some some good research. I think it was from Ireland coming out about that. That's got quite good reliability, um, both as a, a neuromuscular fatigue assessment and uh, it also gives us a subjective pain on the squeeze as well, which the physios quite like. 
Um, so each training day, the players will come in and, and they'll perform that. And, um, and yeah, that gives us a, both a subjective and an objective picture of, of where they're at for that day. And, you know, sort of based on that, you're going to then potentially modify uh, exercise selection yeah, so we'll or our, training mode. We'll have our plan for the day and, and we've got some, some stats on the background that I've developed and that'll either flag them in uh, as particularly not ready or, or, or in a good spot and we'll be able to adjust up or down um, for that particular individual yeah, and I guess it's it's having that long-term data that's really important there, right? Because you might have someone who is, you know, subjectively always going to feel on that lower end, but it might not necessarily be a flag. And it's, it's Yeah, exactly. It's all, it's all, um, all the statistics are relative to that athlete's norm. And, and we've got some good tools. Like we, we have a, a commercial athlete management system called SmarterBase that we use. And, that, and that's really good for, for housing, like tons and tons of data and, and um I can just pull that out and visualize that in any way that I want and put it into a, a way that's digestible for the coaches and, and we can use it from there. Yeah. Great. Uh, would you say that, uh, for example, somebody comes in they're on the objective measure, they seem to be super ready. Everything's good to go, but that subjective one is, is coming up. Not so ready. Are you going to consider that? Is that something you might just discuss with the individual then? to sort of see what's going on or is that no the subjective says they're not ready i'm not gonna push them that day or whatever it is uh i almost wouldn't ever change uh athletes training program without having talked to them um that would always be the first thing i do but if there was that circumstance that you just described as well as the athlete sort of saying yeah i'm not feeling too flash for whatever reason um i would then either put it in the hands of, of the coaches or if, if that's me um just Use, use my experience, I suppose. Um, I think probably more so lately than, than in the past. I've, I've probably had more of a, or now I have more of an appreciation for just practitioner experience in the whole evidence-based practice um, paradigm where you've got your, your best available literature, which I'd probably, in the past, I've probably overvalued. And that's not to it's not to devalue it because that's a big part of, you know, my game and PhD student. I'm, I'm very much into that, but the, the, the practitioner experience and the athlete values, I'm, I'm appreciating more and more as I, I gain more experience as a, as an SNC coach and sports scientist. So um, in that circumstance, I'll, I'll just either talk to the coaches or, or make the assessment myself to uh, based on what I'm seeing. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that you, that you said that. I think I went through a very similar transition at one point. It was, especially as I left the Tigers and I went back into private, uh, it was, okay, I need to come in here, super textbook, follow all the literature to a key. And all of a sudden, people weren't liking training. No one was getting results. And I was yeah. like, there's something wrong. And it's, it's moving away from the art. I think evidence-based, of course, like you said, it has so much value, but it's, it's evidence-based. Like it's not, we're not following it like a scripture. And it is only a guide and it only gives us a snapshot of, you know, a certain percentage of whatever. So I think we should use it, but only as much as we need to use it. And yeah, like you said, experience is king. It was a big, um, it's probably not intuitive. The, when you hear evidence-based practice, the first thing you think of is science, literature, you know, reviews, etc. But um, it was, it was really, uh, it, was, it was really good for my learning when when I was given a, a proper description and introduction to what evidence-based practice is and it, and it does yes it has the best available literature but it also has the in the in the medicine world it's it's patient values but in our context it'd be athlete values and practitioner experience um, and, and it's the three of those combined is, is what uh, is what evidence-based practice is yeah, that's really awesome. I'm definitely writing that one down. It's going in my notes. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's. that's, that's I, I, I didn't. I didn't know that for a long time. I, I'd been working with, you know, top level athletes like at the Tigers when I was quite young. Um, some of those athletes would have been on, you know, over five hundred grand, like close to a million dollars. Probably some of the big ones, and yeah, uh, that was a fairly basic concept that I didn't understand well. Um, but it, I think it's really important. Yeah. Especially that, like the athlete value ones, and taking into account the things that they say and the things that they, they, they the way that they act, is mm. just so important because there's so many little individual differences, and 
they usually are going to know what's best for them in a lot of the time. Of course, they're going to try and get around certain things or whatever. But if we don't value what they're saying, then we're missing a huge piece of the puzzle. And that's, you know, the athlete-centered approach or client-centered approach. So It's got to be the combination of the three. For sure. All right, awesome. Thanks for filling us in on that. Um, cool. So just moving on with the monitoring. Uh, so that's our day-to-day. Um, let's go more now into tracking and managing workloads, uh, you know, over uh, different parts of the periodization and different cycles mm-hmm. and things like that. Uh, what are your main sort of ways of measuring and, and how are you using it? Yep. So for the on-field stuff, we like to keep it pretty simple, mainly for um, the coaches being able to digest the information that we're providing to them. So we'll just go for the really big, um, in my mind, the, the big metrics that are actually having an effect on on the system. And what I mean by that is in the past, I probably you know, when I was learning about GPS and how to use all this sort of stuff, it, it's easy to get lost in, in all the metrics and, you know, Catapult produces like hundreds, like literally hundreds and hundreds of metrics and half of them don't actually, you don't understand what they mean or, or whether they actually have any influence on the athlete and, and so on. So a big uh, mind sh- mindset shift for me in the last little while has been like what, what of these GPS metrics is actually having uh, an effect on the physiology of this athlete? What, what is actually influencing the system? So I've pretty well scrapped a lot of them. Well, not, not scrapped a lot of them, but I, I focus on a couple of key ones. One being high-speed running, which for us is, is running over five metres per second. Sprint distance or very high-speed running, which for us is over seven. Uh, and they're both locomotor demands there's there was a really good paper actually last year that was um it changed my thinking a lot about this it was um uh, it was I've got it here one sec it is uh it basically looks at uh, it's semi-professional soccer players it was a norwegian study and it basically went and did some simulated matches took the GPS and also took a bunch of uh, physiological markers like creatine kinase, myoglobin, and for the 72 hours post the matches, related the the GPS numbers to the actual physiological response. And I thought that was just such a good way to look at it. Um, Because I think a lot of people just track the GPS numbers, assuming that, you know, total distance is actually going to have an effect on, on their physiology, which... In, in my mind, it's probably not because they're walking around all day anyway, like that's being untracked. Whereas in, in this particular study, they found high intensity running, high speed running, was the biggest uh, like predictor of creatine kinase increase, muscle damage markers. And to me, that's, that's really telling. Like I can control the amount of muscle damage, you know, give or take based on how much high speed run they're doing. And, and that's, for me, was just a big mindset shift in, in what I'm actually prescribing from a GPS perspective. Um, in terms of mechanical load, like Axel D-cell stuff, there's a, there's a metric that Catapult do called Axel load, which has been, we've used to pretty good effect. Um, and max velocity is another sort of key one, particularly for, um, you know, soft tissue injury, hamstring risk, return to play, rehab stuff. It's good to be able to track that over time as well and ensure that they're there or thereabouts every so often. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, I think in, in across any broad of, of, from personal trainers all the way to a sort of elite S&C, sports science, it's like, it's always harping on about tracking, 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 but if you're not using that information for anything valuable, what's the point? Like the big one there, run it, uh, total distance but yeah we might be tracking the total distance and think it's important for that 90 minutes of gameplay but what about the other 20 hours they spent well 18 hours they spent walking that day you're not going to count that but we can't count that is is it actually having any effect on the system is this overloading any capacity like it all goes back to fundamental training principles in my mind and this is like walking around yes your total distance is going up but it's not overloading any capacity there's going to be no adaptive response so why does it matter but like there are there are studies that that'll show like the one i just said high speed running okay 
a certain volume of that will produce an adaptive response. So it, it, it is of note to me, like it, it is worth my concern. Yeah, exactly. If we can't, yeah, once we find something that links to something important, then cool, that's what we need to actually focus our attention on and, and you know, keep an eye out for the other things in case something new pops up, but it's- uh, Yep, 100%. Once we know, once we know what the, the adaptation we're trying to chase is and, and how we can achieve that, you know, like max velocity, it, it's, one of the most simple ones, but for me, it's one of the most telling. Um, so yeah, super useful, super easy, digestible for coaches, perfect. Yeah, so j just going into the high speed running and the max velocity stuff. Now, obviously we know that it does, it causes uh, lots of fatigue markers, um, put us more at risk for soft tissue, et cetera. But we also then on the other side, we know that we need to expose the athletes to a certain amount of it. Um, it has a lot of benefits for obviously training adaptations, but also injury, injury rehabilitation. What sort of range are you working with generally? Is it quite a narrow range that you're trying to hit per week or is it opening up depending on the individual, how much they're sprinting in games, et cetera? Um, no, it's, it's fairly basic really. Like it depends on the week that we're on, but, um, and I probably should touch on at some point in this discussion, how the whole seven sort of format works, but if it's on a normal training week for a fit player, we'll be hoping that at least once during that week, they'll get to preferably 95, but 90% of their max and, and we're happy. There's not a whole lot of individualization there beyond that, like the percentage of their max. Yeah. So you just want to make sure they get into that point and then you're good to go. If yeah. they sort of haven't towards the end of the week, will you get them out to just do a sprint? Like, is it that serious for you guys or? Um, yeah, that's another one that'll just come down to the, the coach's experience. Like some, sometimes we will. Uh, I'm just trying to think of when we would have done that. It's probably, I probably wouldn't have seen it very often. Um, but I, I wouldn't rule it out. Like if, if it's a, if it's a key week where you you feel like that's a, that's a primary objective, then there's no reason I wouldn't. Yeah, go for it. All right, cool. Um, when you have someone and you might, for whatever reason, it's been missed and they are just absolutely fried, uh, you sort of cook them, but you know that they have a tournament coming up or something. Uh, is it as simple as taking them out of sessions or are you tailoring them in different ways? Uh, what's your sort of approach when you realize that someone has done too much too early and you need to try and pull them back? Uh, that, that would just be prioritizing the, the key, like the key aspects of the training, like, for me, because, you know, at the end of the day, they're footy players and what's going to get them the best performance outcome is, is practicing footy and playing footy for, for you know, the, the most part, then I'd just prioritise the footy aspects of the training and all the additional stuff, not all, but a lot of the additional stuff that can be removed, um, that would be the first stuff that I'd remove. Uh, it would only be in extreme cases where I'd have to really limit how much footy they're doing as well. I, yeah, I haven't had to do that, which hopefully I won't ever. Yeah, yeah, ideally that doesn't never get to that point. I think that's that's a really important thing for a lot of SNC coaches to remember. I think specifically in the private world, just from what I've seen, it's uh, as a private like a practitioner, you you someone comes to you wanting something specific, and especially if you're working with juniors and or whatever it is, and the parents want it, and it's all this pressure to get results, but you know that they need to be performing their sport. And that's always number one priority. If you don't play your sport, you can be as strong or as fast as you want. You're not going to be very good at your sport. And we need to learn when to, hey, it's okay. We don't need performance today. We just need footy. Or we need to get better at whatever the sport is. So it's a really important reminder, I think, that SNC and athletic performance is super important, but sport always comes first. So if what we're doing in the weight room or on the field, conditioning-wise, is taken away from their sport, we're probably doing something wrong. It's, if you can only do one thing, it'd be practice the sport. So, uh, like you said, we sh let's get into a little bit about the scheduling, uh, which should give people a bit of an idea, yeah. you know, sort of how this stuff's fitting so, in. So, do you want to take us through yeah. a rundown of that? Yeah, for sure. So, sevens because it's not as high profile as a lot of the other um, team sports in in Australia, but in the world, I suppose. Um, so it's just like rugby union, same size field, except there's only seven players on each team and the game only goes for 14 minutes. It's two seven-minute halves and you'll play four to six uh, games in a weekend and that constitutes a tournament. 
um, you'll, for the men, they'll play tournaments on consecutive weekends in, in one part of the world. So, for example, when I mean, there's none going on right now, but our next one was meant to be Hong Kong and then Singapore. You'd go away for, say, three weeks, play on Hong Kong one weekend, Singapore the next weekend, then you'll come home for three to six weeks between legs, they're called. Um, then the next one, you'd go away for like London and Paris. You'd be away for another three weeks kind of thing. And it's it's kind of good and we're probably the envy of a lot of uh, team sports in that we can almost have like little mini pre-seasons in between our legs because if, if you've got six weeks and you don't have to play at all, you can do some really good training in, in that amount of time and the other team sports just aren't afforded that because once they do their pre-season, they're into week-to-week stuff and for months and until the season ends and then they're on off-season. Um, so that's kind of how it works. We, we start our pre-season in August generally and we'll start our first tournament our first world series tournament which is like the proper ones we'll have a couple of practice tournaments and stuff but the first proper one on a normal year will be around the start of december end of november but then on other years we'll have our normal 10 world series tournaments and then we'll have a rugby sevens world cup or we'll have an olympics or we'll have a commonwealth games and now that i've just said that it's actually more normal to have an extra tournament because there's only one year out of the four that we don't but yeah We'll often have like a, a like a big tournament like that once per once per year, which this year was meant to be Olympics, but it'll be next year. Yeah, Hong Kong twenty twenty one now. Yeah. So taking um, all that into oh, so you go. Yeah. No, no, that's all. Okay. Yeah, so just taking that that sort of stuff into account, it, it, like you said, one you're absolutely blessed. <laughs> I guess coming from other team sports, would be thinking that you have time S&T, to. S and C's would love it. Like you can yeah. you can do good stuff in that time. Oh yeah, you should be getting some great gains throughout the year. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which is which is awesome, and it's what one of the things that makes the sport exciting. I guess you got a bunch of really fast, fit, strong guys and girls out there. Yeah, real big running component to the sport compared to like fifteens. You'll often see outside backs from rugby that will come in and be forwards, forwards in um in sevens. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I guess everyone kind of has to have some pace about them because you just have to cover so much more uh, space. Yeah, you have to cover a lot more space per, per person. Um, but you've all, uh, as well as that, you've also got the, the high force collisions like you do in other sports. Not as much because the players are generally lighter and, and stuff, but still still pretty pretty intense. Pretty intense and, yeah, quite a decent workload during the tournaments as well. Um, but yeah, yeah, you got that you, good... I think you play a six-game tournament plus six warm-ups. Like, it can be... I've seen 30 kilometer weeks done, including the training, like the training leading up to the tournament, six, ta- six games, six warm-ups. It's, it can be pretty big. And generally the weekend after the second of the two tournaments, um, we'll, we'll do very little training. It'll almost just be pure recovery. Yeah. So just, just going past that. So you have that, that week of recovery afterwards. And did you want to then take us through, say, a normal you know, six-week uh, intermission in between the tournaments or between the legs there? Yeah, so the six weeks is the longest one we'll have. Um, often, yeah, they, they can they can be anywhere from three to six, um, but almost exclusively the first week after the, after the leg will be a recovery week. They'll probably come in on the Friday. They'll probably arrive in Australia on the Wednesday from, from playing, uh, come in on the Friday, but it might just be like a, a light spin, um, some easy weights, do their medicals, bit of physio, massage, that kind of stuff. And then we'll sort of build from there, depending on how long till the next tournament is. So we might do like a, a sort of a medium loading week, high loading week. And then depending on how long, like I say, how long, how long we can get some good training in before we then need to start tapering down before they'll travel again. And then they'll do like a, they'll do like almost like a tournament week that, that they've trained, they've practiced a lot. It's almost like a, a priming or activation kind of style week where it's just a lot of footy, a lot of low intensity, sorry, high intensity, low volume stuff that, that prepares them for the, for the tournament. Yeah, so you have that really luxury to build into it. Uh, yeah. So with the recovery week uh, or just recovery in general, do you guys have uh, any specific strategies you're using outside of just, you know, time, sleep, nutrition uh, that you use with the guys to the guys and girls, sorry, to get them, uh, recovered as soon as possible um we, we, we like i say we started to kind of just focus on the real big stuff like and a lot of it is is athletes having their own accountability for their job um in 
prioritizing their sleep, giving them good nutrition. And we, we will feed them lunch on training days when they're at, um, when they're at home. Um, but you know, we're not definitely not to the level of like the NBA where we can just give them every meal all the time. And it's super high quality. We, it's pretty well three meals a week at lunch that they get provided by rugby Australia. Um, Appropriate training is another one, just, you know, not you know, overloading too much and not considering management of fatigue. Um, but yeah, like nothing, nothing really controversial in terms of recovery. Like there's a couple of little add-ons, which may be placebo as much as anything like compression garments and hydrotherapy, cold water immersion and stuff like that. But it's definitely not a, a big like a big piece of the program. It's, it's more so just like add-ons for particular players that like it. Some, like sometimes we'll, we'll make everyone do it, like particularly after a tournament or something or after a really heavy week or, but it's, yeah, it's not, it's definitely not given the emphasis that the sleep and the nutrition and the appropriate training is. Yeah. Hit those, hit those big ones first and little bonuses on top. And with the, the strong enough for the others, yeah, like specifically looking at something like like cold water or something. If anything, the evidence is perhaps sending us the other way in lots of it's ways. It's going the other way. It's going the yeah. other way. So, and we're now at a point where we're actually periodizing our recovery. So, in the you know the heavy loading periods where we're far away from a tournament and we've got a lot of time, um, we'll actually remove a lot of recovery so we can actually generate. Uh, a, a bigger adaptive response and hopefully a stronger adaptation. Yeah, just for, for those listening that you know aren't sure on the ice bus, were you able to touch on a little bit about sort of that evidence now that's coming out to saying it maybe it isn't the best idea? Well, it's not super new evidence really, but... Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's probably, I don't know, maybe the last 12, 18 months that some evidence has been coming out. And I'm actually, I'm not 100% sure who or where it's come from, but I've, I've been across it. It's It's that... When you um, perform strength training, uh, you'll you'll get uh, a, a rising inflammation that is kind of a signal for a lot of the adaptive responses that are that are coming, um, be it neural from strength training, hypertrophy, whatever. And some of the research lately has shown that cold water immersion is actually going to blunt that adaptive response. It's going to decrease the inflammation, which in periods of uh, recovery focus is probably what you want. Like in between sevens games, we're happy to sacrifice uh, adaptive response there to be better in three hours. But for most people, um, or for when we're not prioritizing recovery, like, you know, we're weeks away from a tournament, we'd actually rather that more pronounced adaptation. So we'll, we'll look to not do any recovery, particularly cold water immersion. Um, just so we can not blunt that response. Yeah. And it's, um, it's yeah, exactly. We, we want to experience that stress. Like we need that to be able to get the response that we need. But then, like you say, getting closer to the tournaments or in between, it's about feeling good and recovering, not about getting that adaptation. So you just need to know what you're trying to get from the session or from that training week and, you know, adjust your modalities and the things that you expose the athletes to depending on that. Yeah, 100%. always comes down to that, knowing what you want to get from something and then adjusting everything so you get it. Yeah, basically, it's, it's as simple as that, really. Yeah. Then, of course, I guess we have, then you throw in other sort of curveballs, such as the athlete values. You want to talk about that, you might have an athlete who really, really loves them and without them feels like they can't recover, even though it might not be the case. But I guess we, to a certain degree, have to either educate them over time or just let that find its way into the program in some way, right? Yeah, that's that's a good example of the athlete values um, component of the evidence-based practice. You know, I've often, I've seen players that just hate it so much, the, the cold water immersion, that I'm sure that there's actually, I'm actually producing, I've actually produced a, a greater stress response than was already present just by making them do something that they didn't want to do and they were so uncomfortable doing. Um, I've seen, like, uh, which I really like this idea. I've seen some people that have created like a menu kind of thing of different recovery modalities and they had like different weightings or different points to them. And they said, okay, you need to get to hundred points and you can kind of choose your own. So the people that really hate cold water immersion, which there are plenty, 
they'll go for another one. So maybe it's, you know, a nap or it could just be, you know, a particular nutritional intervention or something like that. Um, so they can almost choose their own as long as they're within the, the practitioner's, you know, within his menu. So he's chosen, he's chosen the menu. So as long as he's happy with it, player can choose their own. That's a really great idea. And that sort of comes back to that individual accountability that you mentioned before. And, you know, when you're dealing with professional athletes or any athlete, really, they have an accountability to, to be able to get things done. And if we don't allow them a bit of space to exercise that, then they're just going to become robots and not be able to do anything for themselves. And then you're not going to get great information from them either. The most important, um, like the almost undisputed most important recovery modalities being sleep nutrition and not working yourself too hard uh two of those three are, are largely out of practitioners control like they're going to be doing it at home and whatever so you just need to like you say educate them and hope they do the right thing exactly all right awesome uh so going back to the, the sort of planning for the years uh, like you said you have three years where you have a major tournament and then you have one without how much of your entire year is aimed specifically at that big tournament or is it sort of like no it's business as usual and then when it comes to that tournament we'll, we'll put whatever into it or are you sort of working on a you know a whole continuum to get to that one point uh from a physical perspective there isn't a whole lot of planning like to peak at that particular time um Generally, because that tournament will usually be after our main se- like main World Series season and we'll actually have quite a bit of time after the last World Series tournament before we need to play at an Olympics or, or a Commonwealth Games or something like that. So this is usually. Um, so we can almost treat the, the normal season normally, prepare for them as we normally would, and then we'll still have a, like a, a good portion of time to, to get a lot of good training in and taper properly before the, the major tournament. So there's not a whole lot of um, consideration for, for that all year. It's, it's more, the only consideration would be like a psychological, technical, tactical preparation for that. Like, um, like the Olympics, we've almost sort of had stuff on the Olympics going around for, for the last two years, you know, what are we going to do to be prepared for Tokyo you know, this is the kind of stuff that we need to expect or this sort of stuff, which we wouldn't normally do for a normal tournament. It's, yeah, it's, it's more around that stuff more so than the physical. Right. And I guess we could sort of continue along there. And, you know, for those listening, depending on when this goes out exactly, we are right now in the, the mid of the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so the Olympic Games has been moved to uh, next year. Uh, how big of an impact is that having, you know, on the athlete's mentality and, what are you guys doing to sort of help uh, with that, that thought process change and, and refocus and things like that? Um, I mean, beyond providing kind of reassurance and support, um, there's not a whole lot that we are doing. Like once, once they uh, postponed it, all of us have been on leave, players included, um, for a little while because that was essentially the end of our season. Um, so at the moment, there's not a whole lot happening. We're just giving them a bit of time to process it all and um, ensure that they'll, they'll be ready to come in and have another year to, to achieve it, which, you know, like I'm sure a lot of the players were disappointed at the time, but it could be a blessing in disguise if, if it means we're going to be better prepared. We've got a fairly young team, so, you know, maybe the older teams are another year older and uh, we're, a little, we're another year more experienced. It could, it could be a good thing, so that's the way... So I'm looking at it and I haven't seen many of the players since we've been put on leave, but hopefully that's the way that they're approaching it too. Once they've had their time to process it all. Yeah. Yeah. Having a bit of extra time to get prepared isn't, isn't always a bad thing or I think probably more often than not, it's a, it's a good thing. Um, but yeah, dealing with the disappointment would be the only aspect, I guess. Um, going on from that with periodization, uh, I guess it gets talked about a lot and we have these, these models of how to periodize for, for training. How uh, fixed and rigid is your periodization? Obviously, something like this is, is you've taken out this competition prep and now next year is going to be altered a little bit because of that. Uh, but how fixed uh, or how do you allow space for, for a bit of agility in your periodization plan itself? Because things happen, things change. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, not, not planning too far ahead is probably a big one because 
yeah, like you say, so, there's so many moving parts in, in professional sport that the further you plan ahead, the more uncertainty you're sort of accounting for and more assumptions you're making. Um, so it's, it's probably smart to, to not go too far. Um, sevens is probably one of the more forgiving sports because we don't have the week to week grind like the um like the other major sports in, in that you know one particular week could could really mess a squad around like if it's a particularly physically demanding game or whatever or, or it was a really heartbreaking loss and just the moods down around the around the joint uh, like we've kind of got most of the time we're probably going to have four weeks before we got to play again so we can afford like almost like a, a full recovery week, like I said, we do, where other, other sports probably can't. Um, but they're, they're probably the main ones. There, there isn't a whole lot that we do, yeah, other than just probably just a mindset of being adaptable and being open to changing your plans more so than any actual hard strategy that we have in place. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, just leaving that space there, not, not having something that's so stuck is the easiest way to not get stuck on that thing, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's being adaptable. I think it's a, it's a mindset as much as as much as anything. Yeah, I, th- I think that's very true. Sure, you can have you can have practical things implemented that are you can adjust from here to here or whatever it is. But if your mindset's not ready for it, it doesn't matter how many things you have there. You're not going to be able to switch to the other thing because you're stuck where you are. Yeah. Uh, you guys obviously have the tournaments, and the tr- the tournaments are generally going to be all across the world, right? Yeah, yep. Um, what well, we play, uh, Dubai, Cape Town, London, Paris, Hong Kong, Singapore, Sydney, Hamilton, and what's the other one? Uh, LA and Vancouver. Sounds like a pretty good around the world holiday to me. Um, <laughs> what sort of considerations do you have to put in around the travel? So if you've got like an eight hour flight versus a 14 hour flight or are you taking specific measures sort of before, during and after the flight um, to make sure that the players are as ready as possible and feeling as good as possible? Um, yeah, there's a few things that we do. Um, so the issue with, with flying, and anyone I'm sure that's done long-haul travel will have experienced it, but it, it's just going to disrupt your sleep. And there's a bunch of different scientific reasons of, of why your sleep's disrupted. But in simple terms, it, it, it disrupts your sleep, which will increase your fatigue, decrease your mood, and your performance will be affected because, because of that. And there's a few things that we, we try and do to minimize our sleep disruption and minimize the issues. One of the big ones would just be scheduling the flights as best we can. If we can arrive at a, a long enough time before the tournament um, gives us enough time to do a proper training in, means that we're not leaving at a shitty time in Australia, we're not arriving at a bad time, um, you know, where we're going to want to sleep, but it's actually daytime outside kind of thing. Uh, you can get a lot of uh, almost invisible benefits just by picking a better flight, I think. Um, and that's pretty handy when you're sponsored by Qantas and you can, you can do that, but that's yeah. often not, not, always, not always available. Um, another one, comfortable stopovers. Like if you can get into like your, the airline's, Qantas Club kind of thing. That's that's also good. Uh, it means you can have a shower, you can have food and sort of stuff. Because maintaining your your nutrition, uh, like normal nutrition, is is really important. Um, both hydration and and food. Um, exposure to natural light is a good one. And and if anyone's actually planning uh how to best navigate a, a long-haul travel situation for a, a team or an athlete or anyone a really good resource is a website called Jetlag rooster you can just google that Jetlag rooster it's probably jetlagrooster.com or something but you basically put in where you're going from at what time where you're going to when to what time you meant to land and it gives you like a uh basically like a skeleton of of you know you should, on this date you should go to bed at this time Try and wake up at this time, switch your watch to this time whenever. It just gives you a full detailed plan based on the available evidence of, um, of how to best get through it. And it's awesome and it's free and it's, yeah, it's just a really good website. I'd recommend using that. Um, what else? I mean, if, if you've got a doctor, you can use melatonin, but that's a, that's a doctor thing. 
um, but that can help um, regulate your sleep-wake cycles um, pretty well and some players really like that but that's yeah that, uh, we can't provide that yeah yeah and again, again it sort of comes seems like it's coming back to just get those big things right nutrition sleep hydration and you know just yeah. there's definitely stuff you can do in in that space though to to lessen lessen the negative effects like the stuff the stuff that i just mentioned is the stuff that we do and yeah you know it's it's pretty good but we, we get to arrive like on the monday when we don't have to play to the saturday often which is pretty good like yes we fly a lot further than most other teams but i know just the other day the north queensland cowboys had to fly into sydney and play that day and they'll fly out that night and yeah it's not that far compared to going to london but still i reckon that's pretty rough yeah yeah it seems like you guys have a, a pretty friendly schedule overall overall in that sense so it makes it a little yeah. bit easier but of course you still have to do everything as much right as possible because with that space for be able to do things right you have to do them right in that time otherwise you're missing that opportunity yeah. and I'll, I'll be sure to chuck that website down in the show notes as well um although again none of us will be doing any traveling anytime soon no but i've used it in the past and i know some other people that have used it in the past and it's really good oh, awesome thank you so much um Cool. So just, uh, I guess, get into our last topic for the day. I just wanted to talk a little bit about your PhD. Uh, I understand you're doing it on the effects of heat and humidity for female athletes. Uh, I'm not sure how much you can go into it, but did you want to sort of go into a little bit about what you're looking for uh, and maybe some considerations that we can take away for uh, uh, dealing with humidity and heat uh, when yeah. training athletes? No drama. So the... The theme or topic of the of the thesis uh, broadly is just finding ways that team sports can best navigate and best prepare for really hot and humid tournament conditions. Because there's a lot of research that's been done in individual sports and really lab-based interventions and and a lot of that stuff. While we know it works, it's pretty well impossible to do in a, in a team sport setting. And there's a lot of team sports that do have to perform in in those kind of conditions, like rugby sevens, who travel around the world to play in places that are most of the time in their summer and the Olympics, which was going to be this year now, next year is going to be about the hottest time in Tokyo uh, all year, expecting it to be the hottest Olympics in in modern history. Um, So yeah, just trying to get some evidence-based strategies in place. So we'll be better prepared than the other teams, hopefully give us a competitive advantage. so, I mean, the the issue with, with playing in, in heat and humidity is that with greater heat stress, core temperature will go up. With that, you'll um you, you'll have to increase your heart rate to to maintain your cardiac output, and and along with that, there's there's a lot of issues around your respiration and, and cardiovascular changes that'll down the line lead to decreased performance. And there's some short term things we can do to offset that mainly cooling essentially and perceptual cooling which is just making you feel cooler which actually without the actual physiological change in in core temperature um and then there's the longer term uh strategies like heat acclimation and acclimatization acclimation being the um like in, in a heat room or something where it's where it's artificially produced heat as opposed to acclimatization which is actually going somewhere where there's a hot climate and it's the longer term stuff that provides the best protection for your performance and for um, performance and f- to protect you from like exertional heat illness as well. Um, so really, really the best thing that you can do is, is just planning your training. So you're getting enough exposures to the heat in enough time before you, before you need to be at your best. And some, there's been some good research done on this stuff um, where really you only need about two weeks to, to be getting almost as much uh, heat acclimation and acclimatization benefits as, as you're going to get if, if you do it, if you kind of hit it hard. So there's some good research showing if, if you can get sort of seven to 15 exposures in two weeks, then you're pretty well going to be as, as good as you're going to get. Each day where you're not getting any heat exposure, as they term it, 
you're pretty well losing two and a half percent of what you've got. And there's a bunch of um, adaptations like changes in your sweat rate, changes in your core temperature that regulate like your, your core temperature and your skin temperature. But in terms of a training intervention, like if I was going to sort of give any advice to a coach about, you know, they've got to prepare for the training, um, the best thing to do by far is to plan in advance, make sure you're getting enough exposures in the weeks leading up to, to the event because there's really nothing. Once once you're there, there's, yeah, you can do all the cooling stuff, but there's nothing that substitutes for appropriate, um, like, heat prep in your training. Yeah, so the cooling stuff, sort of like the Band-Aid, uh, it's the last resort, yeah, cover like it, it up. But... There's, no, there's no doubt that, that it helps, but it's... Um, it's pretty conclusive the evidence in that the the best protection is is in the training in the preparing in the heat and for as a as a rough guide when you it's, it's like training like it needs to be enough to, to overload your your capacity otherwise there's not going to be any adaptive response and adaptation so think 35 to 40 degrees and that's like hard to get a lot of the time if you're not going to go somewhere special um we're lucky that uh rugby australia is in the downstairs of our building and UTS is in the top stairs and they have an environmental chamber up, up there. So we've been able to do some, some good sessions up in there where we can set the temperature to whatever we want. But um, yeah, that, that kind of heat that is going to overload a person's thermological capacity um, is, is what's needed to produce adaptation. And there's differences in humidity levels. Like you should tailor that to the, the tournament conditions there's going to be uh, like really hot and wet places and there's going to be really hot and dry places like deserts and things. So you should tailor your training like, like anything specificity, you should tailor your training to what you need to be prepared to perform in. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that it's, I, I thought it would take a little bit longer than that. So two weeks is cool. It, it's good to know that it doesn't take a whole bunch yeah. of exposures. Uh, but like yeah. you said, it, it can be hard if you don't have that equipment, but it's basically like if you know you're going to be training somewhere hot and it's a hot day, you probably shouldn't avoid training that day because you want to get that exposure. Yeah. If you, if you want to be able to perform your best in those conditions, you need to, you need to train in those conditions. And, you know, there's as simple as wearing, like it's the old school Rocky Balboa wearing your tracksuit kind of thing that, that, that can work. You can still get a lot of good effects from something as simple as that. That's available to anyone, but yeah, it, it needs to, it needs to be a proper overload of, of your capacity for, for heat load. Yeah. Yeah, I've done a, I do some endurance running and plenty of hoodie and beanie runs in the middle of summer and they yeah. suck, but you, you really thank yourself for it when you take off for that run at four o'clock in the morning, but by two o'clock it's 36 degrees, you're like, yeah, thank you. 100%, yeah. Uh, you mentioned that there's the cooling methods and then you have the just perceptual cooling methods. Um, mm. Do you want to so, go into a little bit about those and what's actually happening there? Yeah, for sure. So some of the main cooling methods that we'll use, um, a, a big one is uh, cold water immersion. And there's been research I'm done for, of pre-performance cold water immersion. We don't do that. Uh, we do post-performance like post cold water immersion, but there has been research in that. Um, ice towels um, at half time. So we will do that. We get just like cut up towels in a, in a bucket of ice, like as simple as this and to carry it out and just sort of give it to the players around their neck at half time. And they can just sort of wipe their face and stuff with it. Um, sprays. We have like a team room at sevens tournaments. We'll just make sure that they're well equipped with like a, a good fan. Um, we have trialed to, to pretty good use, uh, like ice vests during a warm up, Um, and they're like custom made, um, like for athletes, so it doesn't restrict movement or anything, but you, you kind of freeze these ice inserts and put them in these vests that they'll wear under their training top, and that's been quite good on hot days. Um, so they're the, they're the cooling ones. Uh, and then the perceptual cooling ones, there's a lot of research that's been done, mainly in runners, like endurance runners, around uh, menthol. So menthol's the, like the minty type substance that you'll, like it's kind of like in, it's in toothpaste and things. So you, you know, that sort of pepperminty sort of taste in your breath once, once you brush your teeth and it kind of feels cool, but it actually isn't. You can, you can get that and create solutions like drinking solutions or like a mouth swill, or there's even like a balm that you can rub on your forehead or the back of your neck and things. And it has that kind of minty sensation to it. Um, but it also has like a cooling, like it, it feels cool. Um, and there's been some good, 
some good research in the runners to show that there's a there's a almost like it's a, essentially a placebo effect because there's no change in the temperature like skin temperature or core temperature but there is a, um, a perceived benefit super interesting it's i guess like after you if you have a mint and then you drink a, like a cool bottle yeah. of water it feels extra cold yeah exactly like that yeah, yeah exactly like that you can get that kind of sensation on on other parts of your body like like you can the forehead or a back of the neck where you often feel really hot yeah super chill. i'm actually give that one a try myself because i've got a yeah, long, I've run, got, long run got, coming out i've got like the balm here but you can buy you can buy just like you can buy it from like a pharmacy just really um it's like menthol solution um or peppermint extract that's also another one that it's essentially oh, that's something. It's, it's largely menthol based it's a peppermint extract you can put like a couple of drops of that into like a, a water or a gatorade it doesn't taste very nice but is what it is um and yeah, you can sort of just spill it around your mouth, spit it out, and you'll you'll get that feeling. Or I've got I've got the bumps here as well. Um, you can just sort of rub it on you. And some players like it, some players don't. But it's another it's another method method to experiment with. Another option there. Yeah, it's good to have those options, and yeah, see which ones which ones work and which don't. Uh, mm. Cool. We're coming to the end of our time for today. Uh, I just always like to finish with this question with everyone that comes on, and uh, just gives a bit of an insight into to where your mind is at, but what would you tell your younger self starting out uh, in this industry as a coach or sports scientist or wherever you're starting? What's some advice you would give your younger self? Um, what would I tell myself? Uh, I, I think that you could probably learn a lot from, from almost anyone. Like I've probably earlier on when I was starting to work around um, professional sport and things and, um, I knew this was what I wanted to do and I was probably really focusing on the people in the kind of jobs that I wanted to be, wanted to be working in. And it's not, a, it's not a bad thing because you know that they're, they're kind of walked the path that you want to walk. But I think there's a lot of value that can be gained from, from other people um, in other roles, you know, inside and outside of sport, um, inside and outside of physical performance or, or coaching or any of that sort of stuff. It's just probably taking taking the best bits of what everyone has to offer and applying it to, to your circumstance. And I probably haven't done that as best as I could uh, in the past, but it's it's definitely on the forefront of my mind now. Awesome. I think that's a, some really, really great advice. Everyone in different uh, sort of walks of life has learned something and mm, you can, yeah, take, you can take from that. I'm reading a lot of books now that have nothing to do with sports science and um, I'm, I've been getting a lot of value out of them. Like they can't like, you know, they're not directly related, but there's definitely some, some uh, advice and value in what it is about to sports science, even though it's not um, the same context. Yeah. I think you can get that a lot from books, especially even like going to the, the fiction world. There's a lot of lessons in there that apply to, to general concepts and you can apply those general concepts to your specific situation. All right, Rich, uh, thanks a lot for coming on. I really appreciate it. There's a lot of, uh, lot of uh, uh, knowledge in here that I think is going to be really beneficial for those listening. And for myself, there's some, definitely some things I'm going to be looking into further. I've got a whole page of notes here that I'll be <laughs> going through. So uh, thanks a lot for your time. really appreciate it. No worries, man. It's been good.